We see in verse 10 that she washed the feet of the brethren, meaning she humbled herself in, in countless acts of sacrificial worship. And uh, she, she devoted herself to every good work. She's been a positive influence to those with encouraging words. She's edified and built up the flock. And, and we can establish this fact because her resume is so directly contrasted to that of the widow that we'll discuss next week. And, and as I mentioned uh, previously, she'll be the widow in greed. The widow in greed. In, in verse 13, it indicates she has not remained busy serving the church. Uh, she instead is a busybody. She's learned to be idle. Uh, probably become bored with the church or religion uh, a bit. Uh, she's described as this busybody who really gives the appearance that she's, she's really working hard for the church. But Scripture actually says in verse 13, she's using her ministry opportunities to talk about things that are not proper to mention. And, and as we discovered, these two women aren't included in the Bible merely so that we can learn about how to take care of widows. That's not the purpose of this passage uh, itself or alone. Um, they are here as behavioral role models for the rest of us. Other widows, other men, young and old, other women, young and old. And we can all learn a thing or two from these folks. And uh, all behaviors, good and bad, are described in these widows. And the Bible clearly establishes uh, these bad behaviors elsewhere. And they apply to all of us. They apply to all of us. It's not just these elderly widows. Uh, it's a mirror that we hold up to ourselves and say, hmm, what do I look like? What do I look like? Um, we don't have to be a widow to be guilty of these. Or be a widow to actually follow the widow indeed. I don't believe Paul uses widows as an example because the church in Ephesus is suddenly overwhelmed with just this population explosion of widows indeed who have no one else to care for them. And that um, uh, suddenly there's all these women of just stellar reputation. That they're just overwhelmed with this burden to care for these, these wonderful burdens. Uh, or these wonderful women and, and their burdens. Uh, I, as I discussed last week, I believe these two widows are pro- provided as a contrast so that other women would realize what proper behavior is. Just as in chapter 3, we found out from the elders what the proper behavior is for men. They're role models. Beyond that, the content in this passage makes it very suspicious that the behavior Paul is actually correcting here is not that they weren't taking care of the widows indeed. It gives the appearance as if they were actually stretching their finances out too thin and trying to take care of everybody. And he was trying to give some parameters here because they were getting strung out. And uh, there, there was just too many widows in general, perhaps others as well, that were demanding assistance, yet just sitting around. They are being busybodies. Um, but for the true widow indeed, who had served in such an extensive manner and done so well, especially the one that was left alone, Paul assures, we're going to take care of her. We learned that last week. She's going to be provided for. Church is not going to allow her to suffer. Uh, How awful of a witness would that be to the younger people in our church? To have these widows who had served for years, given everything that they had, left with nothing, and then to suddenly, uh, when their family is entirely passed away or her husband's gone, then we just fail to take care of her. That would be horrible. That'd be horrible. So Paul definitely uh, rebukes any type of behavior that would not take care of widows indeed. Um, 
Concerning professing Christians who don't meet certain criteria, we're told the church has to not be burdened. They can't be burdened. uh, So that they may assist those who are widowed indeed, we see in verse 16. And uh, the subject of benevolence then is where we find ourselves today. Difficult subject. Difficult subject in America. And uh, we all know all widows need to be cared for, right? All widows need to be cared for. In fact, everybody needs to be cared for. Everyone. Orphans, widows, mentally disabled, severely injured, the elderly, even you and me and our families. They have to be cared for. Everyone needs to be cared for. And as we begin, we should acknowledge that if the Bible wanted to address every plausible situation where you might extend benevolence, uh, it'd have to be several hundred volumes long. It would be impossible to put down every situation where you might need to help someone. Uh, On behavioral, on moral topics, we'll see in the Bible, uh, whether it's criminal punishment, legal remuneration, employer-employee relations, etc., all of these things, the Bible never attempts to address every specific scenario that might occur. It doesn't, doesn't try to do that. That would be impossible. Uh, instead, the Bible sets parameters and then provides examples. Parameters and examples. We use them as a guide. And God anticipates that spiritual leadership or the spiritual leader of a family, uh, any type of spiritual, uh, spiritually born-again Christian, is going to be able to assess what's in the Bible and then make godly decisions in, in regards to benevolence and care of others. Making appropriate decisions. And just for an example, looking back at Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 5, we have a rather odd legal scenario. It says, when a man goes into a forest with his friend to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree, and the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies, that man who swung the axe may flee to a refuge city. Now, what are the odds? Was this really that, that common of a situation in Israel that they had to waste space in the Bible on this? No, that's not the type of thing that happens all the time. And you know, Christians take a lot of heat for the Bible, a lot of criticism, because of some of the spectacular illustrations and uh, examples that are in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament law. But what these are actually called or deemed are are sundry laws. They're various examples, various laws. Uh, They're really not ridiculous. They're not intended to be ridiculous. Instead, they provide benchmarks for us to follow, Uh, parameters for spiritual leaders to make judgments. Uh, Spiritual leadership might need to order a restoration of someone who's been harmed, hand down uh, decisions of some sort, and judges in the Old Testament kings, the church looks at these examples and they use them as a guide. Uh, Freak accident, for example, or, or a criminal offense, if it were to happen, they could ask, where does this fall? In, in all these guidelines, where does it fall? And, and we could say, well, you know, it, it really falls somewhere between an axe handle flying off the head of an axe, completely accidental, and then over here, uh, a guy leaving his gate open so that his ox slipped out and gored someone to death. Falls somewhere between completely accidental and negligent. What would God say that the correct restitution would be? 
So we use it as wisdom, their guidelines and parameters, uh, as we find them in Scripture. And, and we can see how judges can assess and hand down appropriate punishment or reward in a legal case. King Solomon was the wisest on this. He, he was found to be the wisest uh, of all the kingdoms. If you remember, the Queen of Sheba came and, and heard some of his judgments, and she's like, wow, the Lord your God. How wise he must be, how wonderful. And she praised Yahweh because of the wisdom that his people showed. So, uh, especially with King Solomon there. And so regardless our topic, the Bible never attempts to address every plausible or possible scenario. Uh, The volumes would look like a lawyer's office if it had to do that. It would be horrible for a church to navigate. No, instead, uh, he provides his wisdom, God provides his wisdom, so that righteous people can live in accordance with his word. God anticipates, and he's going to provide us with a few benchmarks so that there's not total ambiguity or abuse in how things are handled. Um, Live by the Spirit, is what we would say. Live by the Spirit. This is the case with benevolence, where we are today. Um, When should a Christian give? When should we not give? When should a church take on a burden? When should it not? God provides benchmarks for us to look at. Uh, corporately, as a church, we found out last week that for permanent, ongoing support of a widow, financially, from, from, the, from the church itself, they'd have to be completely left alone, over 60 years old, had served the church uh, relentlessly over many years. She has a stellar reputation among all the Christians. That's a benchmark. If she does that, put her on the list of the one who will receive assistance. She's completely left alone with nobody. Um, critics would say, What about the younger widows? Don't you Christians love younger widows? Aren't you concerned about people? hear the criticism all the time. Are you just going to let them starve? The Bible doesn't say that. That's not what it's saying. Uh, But it does say that younger women, younger widows, are not going to be put on permanent ongoing support. Uh, A church might decide to give a one-time gift of a new widow uh, to handle her, her home expenses for three months. Uh, for, for a season. A member of the congregation as an individual who owns a used car business, if her car got wrecked, she might, he's like, you know, I got a used car that I want to give to you. So there's still provision to give as the Spirit leads. Um, but for the younger widows, we're going to see next week in our passage that the goal is not to put them on permanent ongoing assistance. The church can't sustain the weight of every person with a request. It's, it's impossible. Our, our goal Uh, actually is to get their circumstances changed. That's what we'll see next week. We want to get their circumstances changed. We want to get their situation stabilized and then sustainable. Uh, Possibly that could happen through remarriage, Paul suggests next week, or a job. Perhaps if she has uh, small children, other members of the family can step in. Right where we're at with the text today. So, our first benchmark in benevolence in Scripture, as our Scripture reading said earlier, is, can you provide for yourself? That's simple. Can you provide for yourself? In fact, I'm a bit surprised I've never seen a doctrine formulated over the centuries about personal responsibility. Perhaps there's one out there, I haven't seen it, but, but a doctrine that's been formulated by the church over the ages or the Reformers in some era that, that says this first scriptural standard is clear. If you are able, you have to be able to provide yourself. Scripture is very clear on this. Maybe it's so clear as a reason there hasn't been a doctrine change or a doctrine made. Um, Christians don't take advantage of their local church. 
You're not here to receive, we are here to give. That's why we are here. Um, the church's generosity, though, has always been susceptible to, gener- to uh, abuse. It's always been susceptible to that because we're such giving people. We're such generous people. And uh, when Paul said to them in Second Thessalonians 3 earlier, he said, follow our example. Thessalonica had a problem. They had a problem a lot of churches have today. Uh, he said, because we didn't act in an undisciplined manner towards you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, Paul says, but in labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. When needed, when needed, Paul, as a craftsman, he had learned a trade. It was either leather making or tent making or both. That's the type of craft that he did to not become a burden of the church as an apostle. It also helped him to defend himself against all the accusations that said he was in it for the money. He didn't, he didn't ask for the money. He said, I'm going to work extra double hard um, so that people can't accuse him of going around from church to church trying to make money as a missionary. Uh, but he continues in verse 10. Of that same text, for even back when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that many among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, acting like busybodies, not doing any work. And now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ, work in quiet fashion and eat your own bread. That's the command to someone who can provide for themselves. So the, the apostles didn't prescribe, as we mentioned last week, communal living. We aren't living in a, in a commune. And uh, Paul had his own trade. He earned his own money. He paid for his own bread by working for it. And he wasn't going to become a burden to the church. The problem was so bad. He, in the other letter to Thessalonica, chap, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, He also has to mention it there. Make it your ambition, he says in verse 11 of chapter 4, to lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business. And work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. And then Paul writes again in Ephesians 4 verse 28, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing work with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with others also. Who are in need. This is the first century church. It prescribes personal reward for individual labor and private finances. That's what we see in the first century church. So you you will be motivated to work hard. You'll earn your own money. You'll have your own bread. You'll be able to buy your own bread. And you're going to have some extra to provide for those who can't. Who simply can't. Uh, And you'll do it. Not by rules or laws or codes, but by your own initiative as the Holy Spirit moves you to do it. Uh, the, the fact that Paul has his own money, uh, that there have always been Christians in need throughout the history of the church, not the first century church, that assures us that, that Christian living wasn't a commune back then. It wasn't communalism. As I mentioned last week, the church has always been susceptible to this idea of a commune. People being in a commune. And rather than taking personal responsibility, uh, some might see this as the ideal for everyone. It's the ideal because supposedly uh, in Acts, everyone shared equally, divided everything up, um, and and everyone just shares, and everyone works hard, and, and that's what the early church did. No, it's not what they did. 
They didn't share everything in common. They shared some of their goods in common. And uh, Christians, uh, as we said previously, they'll willingly share when the Holy Spirit is moving. They willingly give to one another, and they will do so, Scripture assures us, not under compulsion, not grudgingly, but cheerfully from themselves. Um, Let me ask this. If you don't have your own property and your own money and your own um, belongings, how can you be commanded to share that? How can you be exhorted to give cheerfully if it's all just seized from you and put into one pot and divided up equally? All the, all the teaching in Scripture about personal accountability to one another and generosity and working hard, it's because it is... Um, uh, there are private uh, properties. Acts 2 describes some in the early church. They had extra tracts of land. They had other possessions. They were excess to these people. And they realized it. They said, you know what, I don't need all that I have. And they willingly offer the proceeds to the church, Acts 4 tells us, to be redistributed by church leadership who knew there was a need. Um, they, they started a voluntary benevolence fund is what they did. And and Ananias and Sapphira abused this. Uh, They sold an extra track of land that they had. They gave it, at least part of it. They made it look like they gave it all. Oh yeah, I sold that whole big piece of land over there and I gave all that to the church. And they showed up and kept half of it in their pocket or whatever percentage. So they wanted to look like they really gave this nice piece of property to the apostles to redistribute. And they're like, nah, I'm going to keep some of that right here. I'm really not as generous as I want people to see that I am or think that I am. And Peter said to them, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Yeah, Peter fully implies yes. Private property rights persevered in the Jerusalem church. And again, Peter says to Ananias, after it was sold, was it not under your control? Meaning the proceeds from it, the money? Yes. Uh, You see, biblical Christians have always believed in private property rights. They always have. Uh, The reason Ananias and Sapphira were so judged so severely is because they were deceptive. They were deceiving others and making them think that they're more generous than they are. They want to appear as if they were giving the full value of that impressive piece of land over there. But Acts also demonstrates that Christians still had all their own houses that they met in. Philip had his own house. Simon the Tanner had his own house. The Corinthians had their own houses. Uh, uh, The Philippian jailer had his house. Of course, he wasn't a Christian yet then, but by the time he gave it, the first thing that that Paul didn't say was, oh yeah, now you need to sign that over to us. No. No, nothing like that in Scripture. In fact, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Israelites and and Christians have always had their own homes, their own pieces of land, even in the tribes. Uh, uh, They had fields, they had jobs, they had money throughout the history of the Bible, beginning to end. And uh, with that principle, the first responsibility in benevolence, since you have your own stuff, is to provide for yourself and your own family. That's the first principle. Um, That's a benchmark. We start there. And so you don't become a burden to anyone else. If you have the skills that God has blessed you with, by all means, go out and be fruitful. Go out and earn money. Be the best at what you do. Be at the top of your industry. 
And uh, with that, remember, God says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, what we'll look at in a few weeks, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And then he says for, towards the rich people, instruct them to do good. Be rich in good works again. Take what you have privately and do good with it. And be generous and ready to share. So scripture tells uh, the Christian to be generous, doesn't tell them to sign it all over to the leadership. Take all your property rights and sign it all over to one board that handles everything. Um, In in my personal opinion, uh, these exhortations in Scripture that we've seen to work hard, earn extra money, invest in private property. How about the Proverbs 31 woman? Goes out and buys a field, gets a grove, goes to the marketplace, makes clothes, earns money, gives to her maidens, all these different things. Um, uh, all these private property exhortations that we have in Proverbs in the Old Testament, uh, combined with these exhortations to be ready to share, because there are always going to be those who have need. The poor will always have with us, Jesus said. Um, because of this, um, we're going to have to be ready to give, not grudgingly, but cheerfully. But with all these private exhortations, I can't see how communal living, living in a commune, is permissible. You lose all motivation to work. You lose uh, your individual ability to take your money and share as you see that God the Holy Spirit is leading you. I don't see it as even an option. Um, People will do it. Uh, The other problem that we run into with that, as we see in those I mentioned last week, runs into a lot of abuse. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Those who have control of all those resources... It ends up being a problem nearly every time. So Christians believe in a free market. They work hard. They're rewarded. And they share cheerfully. They share cheerfully with others. Um, And not by any kind of mandatory redistribution in the church. Um, That's just a biblical fact when we look at it. Um, Give out of the abundance of your heart. If you don't have private property rights, how do you give away that which doesn't belong to you, but it belongs to the church? Um... Abuses are horrendous. I'm not even going to go there today. That would be a rabbit trail. At PSLBC, at our church, um, that we're all members here of, we want people to be moved by the Holy Spirit to appreciate and love what they see going on. With the outreach, we had another outreach event Friday night. went really well. With the going to the, the old folks' facility, excuse me, nursing home. Be politically correct there. Go to all these places and give. We want people to see that we're out in the parks giving away hot dogs, giving away the gospel. And God will move his people to say, you know what, I like what's going on. I want to be part of that in some way. Either in in helping uh, financially or whether in helping with their labor if, if the person doesn't have as much money or being part of it and sharing the gospel. There's always opportunity for people to be a functioning part of the body. Wasn't that part of the, your message this morning, Jerry? Perfect. Tails in perfect. Um, you might be thinking we're getting a little off topic. Where does this at all come from 1 Timothy 5? How is it related to these widows? Let me ask you this. If you don't work hard, if you don't earn money, if you don't go out and, and push yourself to exceed, how are you going to have anything left to share with anybody else? It's personal responsibility. Personal responsibility, especially for those who are really suffering in our needs. Because 1 Timothy verse, chapter 5, verse 8, look with me, it says, If anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
the ESV translates this, um, providing for your own phrase, with relatives. Other members of your family. Household, some translate it. That's accurate. This passage is not only about caring for widows. It's about caring for your household, your family. First, working hard to take care of your kids. Even if you're separated, taking care of your family. And there's way too many not willing to work. In the church, in our society, um, this is why Paul says in 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone's not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. Not willing. Doesn't say not able to work. Someone not willing. Um, those who are not able to work, we help them. And, and many of us uh, have family members that are unable uh, have the inability to work for one reason or another. That's why our benevolence starts at home. You take care of your family first. And, and even the unbelievers know this. Even unbelievers know you take care of the family. How, how much more should Christians realize this, that your benevolence starts with your family members? And uh, verse 16 says, even a woman who is a believer uh, has dependent widows. A woman has her own dependent widow. She's to be responsible for them so the church won't be burdened. And this is a situation perhaps like Ruth that we studied last summer, if you remember, with the widowed Ruth and uh, Naomi, her mother-in-law. And it was a desperate situation, even in Israel. But Ruth was tasked first and foremost to provide for her mother-in-law. And she did, with the help of God. And God provided. God came through. And... uh, in fact, I wouldn't doubt in, in writing this that, that Paul the Apostle himself is thinking back to the, to the old uh, uh, standard with Ruth. She didn't, she didn't mess around. She was out there working. Remember when he studied that? She wasn't taking extra breaks and everything. People were impressed by her willingness to go out and work hard. And um, of, of that type of widow, the younger widow in verse 16 says she must assist her dependent widows. The church must not be burdened for reason so that they may assist the widow indeed. Because if you just spread out a little bit all over the place, there's not enough for anyone to get bread. We have to take personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. So care for our family, we see in this passage today, doesn't fall on the church. The care for your family doesn't fall on the church. It falls on you. It falls on me. Uh, Verse 4 indicates this principle even transcends generations. Uh, look at verse 4. If any widow has a children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regards to their own family and make some return to your parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. That's, that's what we're to do. God wants you and me to learn to practice piety, or true religion as James called it, um, first in our own families. In our own families. If you and I don't have a heart to care for the widows or those who are injured or in need in our own families, how are we ever going to have a heart to provide for someone in need in another person's family? Through the church. Paul knows that. He said, it's got to start at home. You've got to start with your own family members. And uh, our own families are our responsibility. It's, it's the boot camp for godliness. That's where you learn to start. Do that first with your own family. And, uh, you know, I remember shortly after becoming a Christian myself, wasn't very far along in the Lord yet, um, Rita's mother, she had already been widowed. Her sister 
was making mistakes. Unbeliever, making a lot of mistakes. And uh, she ended up, her, her sister that is, with autistic twin boys down in impoverished Brazil. No money, no nothing. Um, it's an impoverished country down there. I don't know if you've been there, but compared to what we got, it's tough. Is it tough, Fabio? It's tough. And uh, they were living in this impoverished country, and to this day, I believe the autistic boys are 11, 11 years old. Um, the father has never provided anything for them. Not a thing. And uh, I don't want to go into great detail. It's private. But it is a necessary illustration with how God works and why he wants us to do this. Uh, God puts an impression on Rita and myself, just fairly new Christians, and uh, asks us, so, so you think you're a Christian? You really think you're a Christian? You're all excited about this now, and... and uh, God could say, I know your sister, she's not a believer, she's not acting like a believer, uh, things aren't going real well, but these boys are fatherless. They have nothing. And um, Rita's mom is a widow, has been since Rita was two. They don't have anything. God would, God would ask in Scripture, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And, and uh, as our family members, you know, we think to ourselves, it's like, Rita and I could say, you know, she isn't even making godly decisions yet. She isn't acting godly. She's not a Christian yet. Lord, I could make all kinds of excuses to not attempt to alleviate some of the stress. And uh, she's still living as most of us do before believers. Uh, amount of sin. But what? It's family. It's inherent the family that you take care of family. And... Uh, we have the responsibility for Rita's mother, her sister, and her nephews. It's not First Baptist Church of Brazil's responsibility. It doesn't fall on them. And uh, her mom knew that we had made a profession as Christians. Her mom knew that. Her unbelieving sister knew that we had rejoiced. Wow, how wonderful Jesus is that he saved us from our sins. That's true. We were very urgent with our family members when we first came to Christ. And... Uh, uh, though her sister didn't really care much, she knew that we were talking this big deal Jesus, and he is. He's a great deal. And uh, even those two nephews were eventually going to grow up someday and realize that their sister in America and her, her husband professed to be Christians and how wonderful Jesus is. So, so it's coming down the line eventually, and uh, we at least, they, hey, they, these family members claim to be Christians. Do you think that mine and Rita's willingness, at some level, to alleviate stress there and demonstrate piety towards family is going to affect their um, impression of Jesus Christ? Some level of piety. Each situation is different. Of course it is. That's the reason God finds it so acceptable. I have a couple of photos here since then. Here's the autistic twins. They're both reading their Bibles. Next, please. That's her sister now baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. Next, please. That's her sister serving, I believe it's in Vacation Bible School or something like that, uh, serving the church with the other Christians and doing probably uh, Wild Water Wednesday or something like that. Serving. And one more. They're now a Christian family. By the grace of God. 
by the grace of God. So it's, it's, it's just that they have been saved, and how are we going to not take care of our family? Each of us has that responsibility. Every one of us has a, has a burden. We know. It's not just us. Everybody has something that, that is really a difficult situation, and God's going to provide through that. But our witness is what Paul is saying here is going to be affected to whether or not we're really living out what we say. Are we or aren't we? Well, I realize most of us aren't going to have impoverished family members. Many of us, though, will experience grandparents, parents who are financially strapped. And that's why in verse 4, family care extends to them. Through the grandchildren, return to both mom and dad, parents again. Not just the widow anymore, not just the female, both parents. And uh, dad, grandma, mom, and grandpa. And Scripture says, make some return to them. Make some return to them. Uh, For what? Why? Every diarrhea diaper they ever changed. (laughs) Every broken window that dad had to fix because you irresponsibly threw a ball through it. Every sports uniform that they gave something up so that they could buy you. And uh, even if it isn't your grandparent or your grandma, someone there was there for you. They were your family. They were your parent. They were your father that you celebrated on Father's Day, even if you didn't have a father. There's someone to make return to in this principle. They took care of us. They took care of us. In fact, in most of our situation, they carried the burden for us. As we remember, we recall, I I remember on the farm, when it was really financially struggling back in the 80s, really difficult to stay afloat. When I was in junior high and high school, um, I didn't know. The pressure had to be enormous for my parents. I didn't know. The electric bill was paid Food was always on the table. A ride to ball practice was always somewhere nearby. They're always there. They're shouldering that burden. Life was good, even though it was hard. And, you know, sometimes I look back, actually, and I really miss not having to make a payment on my house insurance. Being younger is some of the best days of our lives. And what we can do is provide that now back to someone else who is in need, either younger than us or older than us. How simple life was back when we were younger. Praise God, my parents carried all the pressure in my situation. What God is saying here is that they're going to get to a point they can't take the burden anymore. They can't, they can't handle it. They can't make the decisions. It's time to take the pressure off of them. So make a return for your parents. Deuteronomy 5.16 says, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may be go well with you in the land which the Lord God gives you. And when Ephesians 6 repeats this, uh, this command, it says, Honor your father and your mother. That's why we have Mother's Day and Father's Day. Praise the Lord. Isn't it wonderful to have mothers and fathers and those who act as mothers and fathers in our lives? And, uh, and we learned that how this Greek word for honor last week, we, we learned it means assign value to them. Even, even monetary value to them. Financially compensate that widow indeed for her years of service. We called it an honorarium. Make a return to your parents. And uh, that same principle is applied right here. Children, if they need it, pay, an anom- pay them an honorarium. Um, there'd be a few things that would be more embarrassing probably to Christ. There'd be other things that are embarrassing, don't get me wrong. Using a little hyper- hyperbole here. But a few things that'd be more embarrassing than for a mother or father or grandmother or grandfather to be living in, in, uh, in extreme poverty and for her neighbors or his neighbors to know that they have Christians that are family members and not taking care of them. 
so we do good works, we're generous. We've got these benchmarks that we're seeing in Scripture. They're still developing. Uh, We work diligently with our hands, so we provide for ourselves, our family, our parents, for others. We take care of our own families, and then we give uh, generously to the church because there are going to be widows indeed who just have to have some support from the organization um, and other things, sick people, uh, handicapped people, others who, who need uh, assistance. So what about everybody else? What about the others? What about those who wish to live their life as a Christian, to claim to be a Christian for wanton pleasure, but they aren't nearly as concerned about piety or godliness? What about them? That's next week. That's our next passage, talking about that situation and how we respond to that wisely. Um, Describes our widow in greed. If anyone is here and it's the first time visiting and uh, you're not understanding yet what this this Christian life means, we've had some events recently. This, This world is in turmoil. This world is in sin, all kinds of ways death and destruction, even that alligator. It's, oh, the whole creation just groans for Jesus Christ to return. And uh, if you have never understood uh, how sin has separated us from God, how that we're sinners, we need Jesus Christ. He died for us. It's God's Son that He sent to die in our place and, and to take our punishment on Him so that we could be spared hell. And Jesus Christ hung on the cross. It says, Scripture says, He Himself bore our sin in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by His wounds we are healed. And that's why we're living this Christian life. In honor of Him because He did what we can't do. He lived a perfect sinless life. Then He died a death that we should have deserved and we do deserve to die. Yet He has showered His grace and His love upon us. And yet, while we were yet sinners, He died for us. So I encourage you to consider that. You need to decide tomorrow is not guaranteed. Have you believed that Jesus is who He says He is? Is there an empty grave? You have to make that decision. Time is short. The days are evil. They're slipping away from us, folks. If you have more questions about that, I encourage you to come up front, speak to Pastor Weiler or myself afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about your position with Christ. Beyond that, I pray you have a wonderful Father's Day. Let's pray.